You're listening to The Encounter Podcast, featuring the latest messages and teachings by David Diga Hernandez. Don't forget to subscribe. The Encounter Podcast. Encounter the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says this in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This will be a time of close self-examination. As we work through the scripture, we're going to glean truths from the word that will help us to examine our hearts, our minds, and really indicate to us whether or not we're growing spiritually. These are five signs that prove that you're spiritually mature. Now, These are more than just signs. These are truths to which we aspire. This is a standard from the scripture that we're all working toward. We all want to be more like Jesus. And all of us have something about us that needs to be more like Jesus. All of us can be more like Jesus in one way or another. And so as we go through the scripture, we're going to look at these signs that indicate spiritual growth, indicate spiritual maturity, And if you're looking at these signs as we go through them and you're saying, oh, I don't quite measure up to this, I don't quite look like that, I want you to toss out condemnation and instead receive conviction. Condemnation says you are a mistake. Conviction says you made a mistake. Condemnation pushes you away from God in shame. Conviction draws you closer to him in repentance. So don't be discouraged. Don't be offended. Instead, take the truths of the word and say, okay, this will give me what I need to examine my own heart, to examine my own spiritual growth, and then to make the necessary changes that will help me to be more like Jesus. One quick portion of scripture, and then I'm going to give you five signs that prove that you're spiritually mature, but we have to lay groundwork. And I know it's, you know, internet culture to get immediate gratification. You want me to just get right into the five signs? I will. But it's very important that you first have a foundation laid, which will take me a few minutes. And in laying this foundation, it will give you a greater understanding of the source of your transformation so that as we go through these signs, you're not discouraged. By reading this portion of scripture, this is going to inspire you to push for more, to be more like Jesus. So let's go now, John 15, four through six. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Those who are rooted in Christ, those who abide in who he is, they are the ones that experience transformation. What does that mean to abide in him? Well, to abide in him is to obey his word. To abide in him is to surrender to his will. To abide in him is to come to a greater understanding of his ways. When you abide in Christ, fruit is automatically produced. You see, it's not your responsibility to grow the fruit. You can't do that on your own. That comes about as a transformation of your nature. That comes about when God begins to do a work in your heart, in your mind, in your soul. 
And as God begins to do the work in you, then fruit is produced. Transformation is produced. Your character, your nature, your mindset, everything about you begins to change as you abide in Christ. So we have one responsibility, and that is to abide in Christ. And in abiding in Him, we see transformation. In looking to Him, in looking at His beautiful countenance, we are changed into His image. As we behold Him, as we focus on Him, we become like Him. To look at Him is to become like Him. So many times we compile our list of things that have to change. All of the areas in our own hearts that discourage ourselves where we see that we're not like Jesus. Well, if only I wasn't like this, or if only I could change that. And maybe you become frustrated with your own behavior, your own impatience, your anger, your giving into temptation, your inability to be like Jesus in certain areas. And if you're not careful, you become overwhelmed and you begin to create this list of things that you imagine that you have to fix on your own. Yes, there's an aspect of surrender. Yes, there's an aspect of discipline and obedience. But ultimately, sanctification and being transformed is a work of the Holy Spirit in you. And so you look at this list and you grow discouraged. And you say, how could I ever acquire that? How could I ever be like Jesus? How could I ever meet that standard? And the good news is you don't have to meet that standard on your own for when we are weak, then he is strong. Grace is the glue that holds together all the broken, shattered pieces of who we are and makes us into the image of Jesus. Now, this is that list that we compile. I need to fix this. I need to fix that. I need, to, I need to transform this about my personality, about my nature, about my character, about my mind, about my behavior. And then we have this long list and then we start to work on all of these things thinking that we're the only ones doing it. But here's the powerful thing about abiding in Christ is when you abide in Him, He takes the list. When you abide in Him, He begins to do His work. So instead of focusing on a thousand things that you have to change, a thousand things that you have to work on. You focus on one thing. As Jesus said about Mary, what she found is the one thing that's worth it. The one thing worthy of her focus. The one thing that truly matters. And it will not be taken away from her. That one thing, abide. Remain in him. Be planted in him. And in doing so, ultimately, he begins to do the work. Now, number one, a sign that you've become spiritually mature, that you're spiritually growing. Number one, you can receive correction. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 16 and 17 say this, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Now here we see that the word of God is the standard against which we measure our beliefs. The word, which is the revelation of God, the word, which is ultimate truth, the word, which is the highest authority, reveals to us God's ways and God's will, his nature, who he is, what he likes, what he dislikes. And as we begin to compare our lives to the word, we're faced with a decision. Do we correct our lives according to what the word says? Or do we try to twist the word into approving of the way we live our lives? Do we try to twist the word to accommodate beliefs that were handed down through tradition? You know, some of us are so passionate about teachings and doctrines and ideas 
that are not just extra biblical, they're anti-biblical against what the scripture actually teaches. And someone who is spiritually mature isn't going to approach it like it's a debate, like it's an argument, like it's, like it's some fight that they have to win. Rather, they're going to approach it by saying, how do I conform to the word? And this spiritual pride is what blocks spiritual growth. When someone can't admit that they got it wrong, then they can't make it right. One of the greatest ways to experience the genuine power of the Holy Spirit is to admit all of the ways that we've been operating in religion. For only when you first admit religious perspectives can you begin to have those perspectives corrected. Only when you begin to admit what is wrong can you begin to correct it by the word. So we change our beliefs based on the word. We change the way we live based on the word. We change the way we think about culture, about society, about people, about ourselves, about ministry, about everything based on the word. You live a life based on the word. Otherwise, your growth is stunted. And we receive correction, not just from the word, but also from legitimate sources. This includes correction from fellow believers. Proverbs chapter 27, verse six says, wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. You know, a true godly friend is going to correct you when you're wrong. And sometimes we become defensive when we're corrected. You know why? Because sometimes it can be a little embarrassing to be corrected. We feel foolish for our behavior. We feel foolish for the fact that maybe we missed something doctrinally. And instead of allowing ourselves to be humbled and take that correction, many of us instead choose to become defensive so that we don't have to admit that we were wrong. Spiritual pride prevents you from receiving correction. But those who are spiritually mature are so confident in who they are in Christ that they're willing to be corrected knowing that that doesn't change who they are in Christ. You see, this is really the root of why people can't receive correction. It's insecurity. They're not confident in who they are in Christ. They're not confident concerning the gifts God gave them. They're not confident concerning the ministry God gave them. And because of this, they have to bolster this facade of strength, this facade of, of intelligence, if you will. Not saying that they're not intelligent, but sometimes believers have to pretend they know more than they actually do. And this goes for all of us. We all fall into these traps. And this is why we need to be able to receive correction from legitimate sources. Look, I understand that you can't take the criticism of everyone around you. I'm talking about legitimate sources, friends who truly love you and who are truly walking with Christ and who truly know the word. That is a good source of correction. Another great source of correction is a spiritual leader. Yes, the Bible talks about spiritual leaders. That's a biblical fact. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the Bible says this, obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. So sometimes a spiritual leader will try to bring correction, but instead of receiving that correction, people leave their church. Now, of course, this isn't the case in every instance because there are certainly good examples, or I should say bad examples, but real examples is a more accurate way to put it. There are real examples of abusive 
leaders who manipulate people and control them. And they're not there acting as spiritual guides. They're there acting as spiritual tyrants, controlling every aspect of their lives. So I understand there are two sides to this, but I'm talking about legitimately anointed, legitimately humble, legitimately loving spiritual leaders who bring correction and ultimately are trying to help you. Here's a good indicator. It's not 100% foolproof, but a good indicator that you're the problem and not the spiritual leader is if you have a past, a history of constantly turning on your spiritual leaders. The reverse is also true. If a spiritual leader has a history of just one person after another, after another, after another, reporting abuse and manipulation, well then that might be a time for the leader to look at themselves, but this doesn't negate the fact that the Bible clearly teaches that we have been given spiritual leaders to correct us. I thank God I have friends who can get in my face and tell me when I'm being ridiculous. Me, I'm a perfectionist. Everything has to be just so. So there are times when my pal Steve here or Ruben or many of you know Patrick, they can get in my face and say, you're being a little difficult. You're being too picky. Steve, one time I believe you said, stop <laughs> acting like a diva. And it kind of snapped me out of it real quick. He said, will you stop? He said, he told me this. He stop acting like a diva or no one's going to want to work with you anymore. <laughs> I thank God for a good friend who not only has the love, but the boldness to address me in that way. Now, not everyone can do that. I'm not going to receive correction from everyone, but from legitimate sources who God has placed in my life, I will. I thank God for my spiritual fathers. There have been times when I've said things on camera just because maybe I was being a little too controversial. Maybe I was being a little too apathetic toward the way I was communicating something. Maybe I joked in a certain way that came across the wrong way. And maybe actually, absolutely, there have been times where doctrinally I was just kind of off on the extreme on one end. And I've had spiritual leaders who love me, who support me, who care for me, that will get on the phone and call me and say, hey, why did you say this? What did you mean by that? Why was it so unclear? And it can help to correct things, not just in what I teach, but in the way I live, in the way I am for my day-to-day -day life. I have people who can watch that and correct that. Do you have the same? Because those who are spiritually mature can receive correction without becoming defensive. Be humble, be teachable. They have the ability to admit when they are wrong. I've seen it often where, you know, believers, they just don't want to admit that they can learn anything. And so they'll hear a sermon and they'll say something like, that was a great message. I, I, I knew that already though, but it was good. I'm glad you said it. And what they're really saying is you can't teach me anything or I can't really learn anything. And instead of admitting that they learned something, they pretend as if they've known it all along. And this is not the case in every instance, but that's just an example of how this plays out. The Bible says this in Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Yeah, I've been there. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Look, I've been rebuked before, okay? I know what that feels like. And, and your ego sometimes is like a balloon. And when someone rebukes you, it just deflates the whole thing. And, and you, you, it doesn't feel good to get rebuked. It doesn't feel pleasant to be confronted by a friend who can correct things. But those who are spiritually mature, instead of becoming defensive, instead of trying to twist the scripture to prove why they're right, Instead of saying, well, I'm offended, that's it, I'm leaving, I'm going to the next church. They say, okay, maybe there's some legitimacy to this. Now, if I can balance this for a second, this doesn't mean that everyone who corrects you 
even has the right to do so. Like I can't tell you, probably every week there's a new pastor or preacher on the internet who thinks God has anointed them to bring correction to my life. And I'm thinking, I don't even know who you are. And we just can agree to disagree on certain doctrinal things. And that's not me being facetious. I'm not saying that to be, you know, um, mean spirited anyway. But if I were to pay attention to every criticism from every angle, from every person, I would never have any peace. I would just be a mess in my mind and my emotions. This is why I trust God to position people in my life spiritual leaders, spiritual friends, family members who love me, who can correct me. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, we also have the scripture, Proverbs 12, one, one more verse I'll read in this section. To learn, you must love discipline. Now this is the Bible saying this, not me. It is stupid to hate correction. It's a very strong way of putting it, but that's what the scripture says. And you receive this correction. This means you could admit when you're wrong, correct that mistake, and this also means that you can apologize. Spiritual people who are spiritually mature have the ability to apologize. So that's number one. Number two, on the other side of the coin, you can forgive without receiving an apology. Now, many times when someone is offended, here's how it plays out. They offended you, so here's what you try to do. A, you try to get everybody else around you to be offended with them too. B, you constantly talk about the offense. Do you realize that in talking about the offense, in constantly replaying it in conversation, constantly making little jokes about it, constantly bringing it up, you're actually agitating the bitterness in your heart. And so what ends up happening is we hold this position of ego and we say, well, well, I'm not going to let it go until they apologize or I'm not going to let it go until they realize what they've done. And look, I understand that in some instances, there's some legitimacy to that kind of thinking. But for the most part, what does the scripture teach? Let's look at Luke 23. I'm going to read verses 33 and 34. Watch this. When they came to a place called the skull, Golgotha, they nailed him to the cross and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I mean, here he is being crucified. He's the God of the universe, the God of eternity and time. And he's being crucified. Not only, if I was in that situation, my pride probably would have got the better of me. How dare they treat me this way? Do they know who I am? That's, that, that would have been my response, but not Jesus. He's, he's in the middle of being crucified. He's being treated poorly. He's being dishonored. He's being spat upon. It wasn't just the pain. It was, it was the dishonor that they had toward him, I think, that probably was difficult. I mean, if you know you can retaliate immediately by calling down a legion or an army of angels, you know you can do that, and then to not do that, that takes some very strong spiritual character. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Wow. And the soldiers, now, now watch this. Jesus says this, he forgives them. As difficult as that is, he, he forgives them and then they go on gambling for his clothes by throwing dice. So, so that's like a slap in the face. Have you, ever, have you ever wanted an apology from someone and they don't give it to you? And not only do they not give it to you, they actually dig the wound in deeper by dismissing the fact that maybe they even did anything to offend you. 
or you forgive them, you let it go and they still mistreat you, they continue with it. I'm not talking about letting people take advantage of you or abuse you. I'm talking about learning to let things go. Yes, you can disconnect from people who've hurt you if they continue with that pattern. But here we see that Jesus did not wait for an apology before he would release his forgiveness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says, Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. So here we see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, that bitterness is, is a root, and a root produces something. So bitterness is not in and of itself the only problem with unforgiveness. Bitterness is a root that grows other fruit, fruit like anger impatience, um, defensiveness, and there are so many things that come out of bitterness and it actually begins to destroy your life. I mean, someone who's been hurt and has not dealt with it, they're more easily hurt by the next person. I've seen that pattern play out more times than I'd like to have seen it, where someone will be hurt, they're offended, they carry that hurt and that offense, and the next person that comes along who hurts them, it's much more easy to be offended. Offended people are easy to offend. Bitter people more easily become bitter. And so they never really deal with those issues deep within their heart. And because of that, they, they compound that bitterness and they become more and more offended and everyone has to walk around them like they're on eggshells and make sure they don't say the wrong joke or, or, or hint at the wrong thing or, 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 or maybe trouble them in some way. And this, there's this tension, there's this anger, there's this impatience and you're, you're real snappy with people and real moody and, and people quite, you're passive aggressive. They can't really tell whether or not you're joking, but you're, you're making these backwards mean comments. And that's what happens with bitter people. I wrote this, bitterness seeks revenge, forgiveness seeks reconciliation. Bitterness lives in the past, forgiveness frees you to dream about the future. Bitterness says, because they owe me. Forgiveness says, because I owe God. Bitterness pushes guilt, forgiveness lifts burdens. Bitterness seeks to prove a point, forgiveness lets it go. Bitterness accuses, forgiveness covers. It's amazing to me how many believers get this wrong. I mean, you want to talk about sins that are tolerated in the church. I think the number one most tolerated sin in the church is unforgiveness. Well, you don't know what they did to me. Or, or there's just this, this, this sense of, and it really is pride, and it's so hard to pin down. Because, and I think that's why it's so difficult. I think that's why so many people struggle with this because they just can't see it because they feel so justified in their gossip. They feel so justified. They feel like they're, they're moving in righteousness by being offended and mistreating people and holding that grudge because they did wrong and I'm standing in the right. You know that's not it. You know it's just your pride. And this is why unforgiveness is really probably the most tolerated sin in the church today. Ephesians 4.32, instead be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. I mean, people are so bent on proving a point. No, they need to understand why they were wrong, or they need to admit that they were wrong. And maybe you just see the situation differently than they do, and instead of trying to win, why don't you just forgive? And it's amazing to me that this right here, this simple truth of forgiveness 
though it's basic, is, is probably one of the most neglected practices in the Christian world. And not just to forgive, but to forgive as Christ forgave me. To forgive like God forgave me, like as in separating it from my mind as far as the East is from the West, not keeping that record, covering it instead of demanding that you pay for it. That's true forgiveness. Society won't teach you that. Ego won't teach you that. The word teaches you that. Amen. Letting it go. Forgive faster than they can apologize. Father, forgive them. Forgiving faster than they can apologize. Matthew chapter 18 Verses 21 and 22 say this, Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Look, I understand in culture today, we, 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 we really celebrate revenge, and I think that's pretty sad. And while I understand that there are actual abuses, while I understand that there is actual um, wrongdoing. I understand that people do gossip, people do mistreat you, people do hurt your feelings. I understand there are some legitimate reasons for being hurt. I get that. But I think we've gone way too extreme on this idea of demanding that apology, demanding that, that they, they be punished for it. That's really not the Christian way. It's society's way, but that's not the Christian way. And so we as believers, well, I'm not talking about abuse, so please don't hear what I'm not saying. We as believers so often imagine that they need to understand what they did. They need to really realize they need, they need to, and that's the problem. We want them to admit you did this wrong. And until you do, I'm not releasing you from this unforgiveness. Well, maybe that never happens. Maybe they don't see the situation like you see it. Again, I'm not talking about abuse. I'm talking about just everyday offenses things that pile up. Maybe they legitimately did do you wrong and they apologized for it, but you're still mad. You're still upset. This is why Jesus said to forgive them 70 times seven. So if, if, if you're multiplying this, it means that you're forgiving them several times for the same offense. Why is this? Why does Jesus say 70 times seven? It's because sometimes it's not the event that offends you, but it's the memory of the event. Mm. Sometimes you have to forgive them again and again just because of the simple fact that you remember it again and again. Maybe you have to choose to forgive them every time it comes to your mind. Maybe you've forgiven someone, you moved on, things become good, and they don't even realize it, but you start going back to remembering that time they offended you, that time they said something ill of you, that time they should have had your back, but they didn't, that time you felt abandoned by them, that time that they didn't handle a situation the way you thought it should be handled, and then it starts to build up again. Unforgiveness is the sin most often justified in the church. And those who are spiritually mature, they can forgive without receiving an apology. And as I said, I can balance this because there's some real manipulation and abuse going on in the church world. I understand that. But I would say this. I think biblically speaking, we've gone way to the other extreme on the other side of what the scripture teaches, trying to make up for the way maybe some extremism has entered the other way. What I mean by that is, I think more times than not, you should just let it go. I think society teaches the opposite. Now they teach more times than not, you should, you should, you should hold on to that grudge, hold on to that anger. And the church has kind of accepted that. But that's, that's really not the Christian way. The Christian way is, I forgive you. I let it go. The Bible says God does not deal with us according to our sins. Should we deal with others according to their sins? Well, again, 
I am aware that in certain cases, yes, you should, but in most cases, let it go. And that's number two, you can forgive without receiving an apology. Now this one you'll find challenging here. I mean, these are all challenging, but this one I think is especially challenging. Number three, you don't become frustrated with God's timing. That one's difficult. Mm. I wrote this, frustration with God's timing is a symptom of the deeply hidden belief that you know better than God. Let me read that again. Frustration with God's timing is a symptom of the deeply hidden belief that you know better than God. Proverbs 16, 9 says, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. People who are spiritual don't have to fight with God and they don't have to try to force him. They just flow. Some believers live in the posture of fighting, constantly trying to get God to back off on his plans. Lord, I don't want to do that. And we find ourselves in the sins of omission, not wanting to do God's will, resisting it. And then some try to find that place of forcing him. That's the opposite problem. Now they're doing things he doesn't want them to do and they're trying to force his hand. God, you're taking too long. God, you didn't do it the way I wanted to do it. God, you didn't choose the right people for it. God, I don't trust you in the timing. I don't trust you with who, I don't trust you with the circumstances. And so we become frustrated in God's timing. And I found that those who are spiritually mature just kind of have this peace. Now, I'm not saying to lack spiritual ambition, especially those of you in ministry. You should have some ambition for the kingdom of God. You should work to expand and to grow and to make things happen by way of good stewardship. I'm talking about those seasons when you know God is not in something and you still try to make it happen. That's the difference. You see, some fight them, some force them, others go by faith in the flow. And when God speaks to you to do something, you need to be like a bulldog and do it. Don't let go. But if God is not in it, don't try to force it. If God is in it, don't try to fight it. And those who are spiritually mature just kind of have this peace on them. Even in the midst of seemingly impossible circumstances, things may not seem to be working out, but there's this peace. There's this inner knowing, this inner witness that they're right where they need to be. They're attentive to his voice living just like Jesus did, mirroring the moves of the heavenly father, John 5, 19. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. So Jesus was mirroring the movements of the heavenly father while here upon the earth. He wasn't just in God's timing on a monthly or weekly or daily schedule. Jesus was mirroring the movements of the Father down to the very millisecond, right in sync, right in step, right where he needed to be in every instance. He was right there where God wanted him. As you study the scripture, you'll see that Jesus fled, Jesus walked, Jesus ate, Jesus sat, Jesus taught, but you won't read in the scripture that Jesus ran. And Jesus never ran because Jesus was never late. And Jesus was never late because he lived in the consistent will of God, aligning himself with heaven's plans. And in doing this, he became synchronized with the Father to where it was like a mirror image. It wasn't off by even a millisecond, his movement. 
He began to move as the father moved, and he would slow when the father wanted him to slow. He did nothing without his father's permission. This is how those who are spiritually mature live. You're not frustrated with God's timing. I mean, think about how people become worried about so many things. You realize worry is just how you worship your fear? Mm, come on. Worry is simply your flesh's attempt at prayer? Worry is how your flesh prays. But when you trust in the timing of God, there's this flow to your life. There's this ease to it. Not saying there's no trials, not saying there's no circumstances that you'd rather not deal with. I'm not saying that you're not going to face heartache. You will face all these things. That's a part of the Christian life. But what I am saying is even when hardships arise, even when you get into a situation where you don't know how God is going to do it, there's this peace on you because there's an ease of flow. You're moving with the Holy Spirit. You're allowing him to do what he wants to do. I mean, I think of all the different times the Lord's come through for me in ministry and by his grace, not anything in my doing, by his grace, he's allowed me to have peace. He's helped me to have peace. He calms me when my nerves try to get the better of me where I, just, I can just, by the Holy Spirit, not in my own power, just, I can just relax. As much pressure as there is in the ministry, as many projects as we have going, as many goals as we have that seem impossible to those on the outside looking in, I'm not worried about it. Why? Because it's the flow of the Holy Spirit. And this is how the spiritually mature live. I'm not trying to brag on myself. This is the Holy Spirit's doing, just to be clear. It's His help that does it. Now, I'm going to talk about number four in just a second. And this one is a very misunderstood truth. I think people abuse this. There's a lot of truths that people abuse. And it's probably one of the most commonly dealt with issues for believers and especially those in ministry. Number four. Number four is you are more concerned with God's opinion than man's opinion. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse one says this. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God as we have taught you. You live this way already and we encourage you to do so even more. Now, a caveat here, because sometimes people say things, and this is why I said it's misunderstood. So yes, we understand that we're to live for God's pleasure, but have you ever seen someone say, I don't care what anyone thinks of me, I'm gonna do what I want. That's not the maturity I'm talking about. In fact, that's immaturity. When somebody just doesn't care what anybody thinks, that's selfishness. And I always find it ironic that people would post that online. I don't care what anybody thinks of me. I think that's funny because you care that they think that, obviously, because you posted it. And so I'm not talking about this immature high school mentality, I don't care what anyone thinks of me, I'm gonna be myself, live my own way, do what I want, live by my desires, and whatever the consequences are, I'll bear those, and I'm not gonna care. No, that's selfishness, okay? It's not what I'm talking about. Rather, I'm talking about prioritizing God's opinion above the opinion of man. And when you do this, it sets things correct in your life because now you are concerned about others. You don't want to be selfish. I do care what my wife thinks of me. I do care what my daughter thinks of me. I do care what my team thinks of me. I care what my friend Steve thinks of me. I care what my pastor thinks of me. I care what you think of me to an extent. But I'm not controlled by those thoughts. I'm not controlled by those opinions. Everything about me works to please God. I want to please Him first. And if I'm pleasing God first, then that establishes me in confidence. And when I'm confident that I'm pleasing God, I can say, if God be for me, who can be against me? 
Now, I care what you think in the sense that I want to make sure I'm teaching you the proper, uh, proper way of scripture. I want to make sure that you know I love you. I want you to make sure that you know I care about you. I want to make sure that you know that I'm here to pray with you. Those are things I want you to know. I care about that. Um, but I care more about what God thinks. I'm not trying to offend anyone, but if I have to offend someone in order to please God, I'm going to do it and I'm not going to apologize for that. And you should live that same way too. I used to be very afraid of people's opinions. Like they would drive, drive me. Like I, I could have a great service and if somebody said, well, you know, I didn't like it because this is and this, my heart would just sink and my adrenaline would rush through me and I'd feel, oh my goodness, everything's falling apart. The ministry's falling apart. No one's going to support me. Everything's going to go downhill from here. And, you know, I would catastrophize because of people's opinions. And I've learned, though I'm not perfect at it, I've learned to care more about what God thinks. And if I know that what I'm doing is pleasing to God, that establishes me in confidence so that I'm not overwhelmed by criticism. Sometimes you're going to have to side with God's word and people will call you a bigot for it. Sometimes you're going to have to stand your ground and declare things that are true and that are necessary to say. And you're just going to have to allow people to think that you're mean spirited. I've had people ask me, why are you so narrow minded? I said, because Jesus said narrow is the way. Truth is narrow. Truth is not broad. Truth is not wide. Truth is definite. It's narrow. It's specific. And there is only one truth. So as we live in this world, we're going to have to make decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. Am I going to care more about what they think of me? Or am I going to care what God thinks of me? And again, this is not to embrace a selfish lifestyle and to just say, I don't care. Whatever the consequences, I'm just going to be, I'm going to be me. And sometimes being you is not the best thing. You shouldn't be you. You should be like Jesus. And in being like him, you please God. Forget the fear of man. Don't live by other people's opinions. Live for God's opinion. So that's number four. You care more or you're more concerned with God's opinion than man's opinion. So, so far we have one, you can receive correction. Two, you can forgive without receiving an apology. Three, you don't become frustrated with God's timing. Four, you are more concerned with God's opinion than man's opinion. These are signs that you're becoming spiritually mature. And number five, you serve. Matthew 23, 11 says, the greatest among you must be a servant. Nobody is above serving. Now, we all serve in different ways, but those who are spiritually mature recognize service. Look, here's my perspective when I go preach somewhere. Obviously, first, as I said, I want to please God. I want to make sure I'm div rightly dividing the word. We who teach will receive stricter judgments. So I want to make sure that when I present a message like this or a teaching on any topic, I want to make sure that I'm aligning with the truth of the word of God, with his standards. Of course, that's first and foremost. But whenever I minister to God's people like this, like as I'm ministering to you, I don't view it like I'm entertaining you. It's not my job to entertain you, though sometimes the services have very exciting moments that are quite entertaining. Sometimes the topics we cover are very entertaining. Sometimes the stories that we share together are very entertaining, but that's not the purpose of why I'm doing this. When I, I'm more concerned about imparting than I am with impressing. And so when I share with you, I want to make sure I'm, I'm serving it to you like a good meal. This is how I view preaching like I'm serving a good meal. 
Sometimes the meal is something you want to eat slowly. Sometimes it's a quick meal. Sometimes it's a snack. Like when I do, you know, quick five, 10 minute teachings. Other times it's like a three course, four course, five course meal where I'm bringing lots of material very slowly. Sometimes I teach where I'm explaining verse by verse, like I'm doing now. Sometimes I preach where it's just a passionate, inspired uh, revelation that God gave me. So there's preaching, there's teaching, there's sharing, which is more personal. But every time I do serve you the word, I'm looking at it like I'm delivering a fine meal. But I'm your server. I'm your waiter, if you will, serving you a spiritual meal. I view it not as me entertaining you. Rather, I view it as you sitting at a table and I'm here to serve you now. I'm your servant. Do you realize I'm serving you right now? I am serving you. We all serve in different ways. But the moment you shift your perspective from this elitism, that's when you begin to suffer the consequences of an immature spiritual life. Really, those who are spiritually mature can prophesy as they serve. They recognize that prophecy is serving. They recognize that ministering healing to the sick is serving. They recognize that casting out demons is serving. They recognize that preaching and teaching is serving. They recognize that leading in worship is serving. We're serving God, but we're also serving God's people to edify them, to encourage them, to build them up. I'm serving you. I'm your servant. And I want you to see me that way. I don't want you to see me as a hero. I don't want to be seen as a public figure. I don't want to be seen as a popular YouTuber. I'm your servant. I'm your brother. We are family. And, and that's the perspective we need to keep. Now, look, I understand people have a wrong perspective on this because, you know, like people get mad. Well, I didn't see the pastor at the car wash, so he doesn't have a servant's heart. Well, your pastor was preparing Sunday's message, which is why he wasn't there on Saturday at the car wash. That's not for anyone specific, nor is that a word of knowledge. That's just an example. I'll show it to you in the book of Acts, Acts 6, 2 through 4. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. Man, can you imagine if a pastor said that today? People, people would say, oh, that's toxic. The pastor living like a, a behind the scenes life where they're treated like some special leader while everyone else does the work. All the volunteers help. Well, that's what volunteers do. They help. We all serve in different ways. And so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. But see, they didn't have this elitist mentality. They just recognized where they were more effective. So on the other side of this, this doesn't mean that if, you know, the bishop doesn't clean toilets, that he doesn't have a servant's heart. That's one way to serve. Doing children's ministry is another way to serve. Working the church nursery, that's another way to serve. Cleaning up the church, another way to serve. Reaching out to the community. Feeding the homeless, clothing the naked, sheltering those who have nowhere to go. These are ways to serve. But this is more about mentality than it is about task. This is more about perspective than it is about projects. When you begin to see yourself as a servant, that's where that maturity flows. This doesn't mean that you can get mad at your pastor because he wasn't there the day they were distributing food. Maybe he was on a mission trip. Maybe he was counseling someone. Maybe he was praying with someone in the hospital. You don't know. And so we have to get rid of that, that, that perspective. It's really ego, which demands things like that. Well, I demand you do what I do. That's ego. And I think society has a, a real problem with that, especially in my generation. But, but recognize it's all service.
And again, it's about perspective, not projects. So when you have this servant's heart, you view everything that you do as service. So one, you can receive correction. Two, you can forgive without receiving an apology. Three, you don't become frustrated with God's timing. Four, and I have a couple bonus points for you. Four, you are more concerned with God's opinion than man's opinion. Five, you serve. And I'll just give you these as lists. These are bonus points. You ready? Next, you are kind and compassionate. And Galatians 5, 22 through 23 are going to be what I use for this point and the next two points. Next, you are full of joy, even in unideal and challenging circumstances. You are patient with people. Yes, even the difficult ones. Now, Jesus became frustrated with people too, yes, but he's still patient with them. He recognized their shortcomings. Uh, here's a big one, 2 Timothy 2, 23. You avoid pointless quarrels and drama. Funny, if people keep having to say, you know, I never get into drama, but... You know I avoid drama, but you know I never argue, but they have to say that because obviously they're always in drama. That doesn't mean everyone who says that is, but it's a good indicator that they may be trying to compensate for something, um, you know, namely that they're always in drama. Next, you avoid gossip. James 1, 26, Proverbs 11, 13, Proverbs 16, 28, Proverbs 17, 9, and Proverbs 20, 19. You ever hear someone say, this is public, hmm. so it isn't gossip. Yes, it is still gossip. I, 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 it really grieves me when, say, for example, a minister falls into sin or is perceived to have fallen into sin. You can't believe everything. How many people jump on that and they want to do, you know, documentaries and videos and podcasts and, oh, well, it's public, so it's not gossip. Like, are you kidding me? Have you no fear of God? You know, it's common cliche to say, well, you know, when the scripture says that to touch not God's anointed, it's not talking about pastors and leaders. Well, in some sense, we still see the spiritual principle of honor. Uh, you can't talk about men and women of God like that. You can't talk about fellow brothers and sisters in Christ like that. And to excuse it by saying, well, it's public, so it's not gossip. That's Where does the Bible say that? It's still slander. It's still harmful words. It's still conversation that's tearing somebody down. So the spiritually mature avoid gossip, even if they feel they have an excuse for it. So, Father, I pray you would help us to apply these. Give us the spiritual insight to see where they might apply in our lives. And I pray, Father, that you would give us the grace to meet these standards. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And I want you to say it because you believe it. Say amen. Thank you for listening to The Encounter Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. Support the podcast by becoming a monthly supporter or making a one-time donation now. To give, just go to davidhernandezministries.com slash donate. Until next time, remember, nothing is impossible with God.